0: Well, for better or for worse, families resemble each other. Family members resemble each other, for better or for worse. Some of you aren't amening because your family's in the room, and I get that. <laughs> I, I totally get it. We, uh, you know, Apple Photos has this thing where it, it recognizes faces, and so you can actually search pictures by faces. It's kind of creepy. But, um, but this week, I stumbled on this reality that... Uh, in my Apple Photos, it couldn't dis- discern between Jack's face and Sam's face, my two sons. And so, like, I was looking for particular pictures of one of them, and I was getting like the whole thing. And so, it was very confusing. And I was thinking, well, yeah, the computer doesn't know any better. Uh, maybe they'll figure it out. But, you know, families resemble each other, they, they look a lot alike. Not just physically, though. In general personality traits, right? Have you ever had somebody say to you when you said something or acted in a certain way, oh, you remind me so much of, you know, your uncle, whoever, you know, whatever, right? And they, they throw out a family member because your behavior reminds them of a family trait. Well, here's the reality. In Christ, we have been ushered into and made members of God's family. And because we are members of God's family, we now are growing in sharing particular traits of that family. Belief in the truth must change how we live. That's basically John's main idea, that that we have believed this gospel, and therefore we now walk in the light. We are different than we were and different from the world. You'll remember that when John wrote this letter, uh, he was writing because the church had been exposed to a false teaching that went like this. You know what? As long as you agree with the doctrine you can basically do whatever you want. And there was a separation of behavior from doctrine that you believed these certain truths about the universe, about God, about yourself, whatever, and then... Because you believe those things, it doesn't matter how you live. You can treat people any way you want. You can do whatever you want Friday night. It doesn't matter. You Just, you know, do whatever you want. And they're separate realms. What you believe spiritually and then how you actually live in the material world, they're separate realms. And so John is writing this letter to say, well, that's not how it works in our family. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. When we believe the truth it necessarily results in life change. It's got to impact how we live. And so this is going to help us this morning in two specific ways. Uh, First is when we we see that we don't share the the traits of the family, maybe we need to look more closely at our claim to be in the family. It's going to help us potentially identify false faith or fraudulent faith. So if we say, I'm in this family, but then we never live like it, we need to question that. Secondly, though, there's also a help for us to consider, you know what, I'm in the family, but this particular trait, this one part of being in the family, I'm struggling with and I need to grow here. And so this is a very practical passage. It gets to a lot of uh, behavioral issues, right? The the bullseye of our passage, though, is actually in chapter 3, verse 1. So we're going to cover the whole paragraph, but I want to start at the bullseye at the center, and then we're going to consider what's around it and see how it all works together. John, he organized this, if you call it organization, I don't know, but this paragraph is like a spiral. He just keeps kind of circling to these several different ideas. So we're going to look right at the heart of it first, and then we're going to consider these these other concepts as they relate to uh, chapter 3, verse 1. But watch Chapter 3, verse 1, this, in this verse, he describes how we got into the family in the first place, right? We're going to talk about family traits, but let's think about how, how did we get in this family in the first place. And in chapter 3, verse 1, John says this, See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. Now, if we just pause there in the middle of the verse— this is—the uh, the, the verb see here is a command. It's one of two commands in our paragraph, but it's, I think, the primary command. Look at the great love of the Father, a love that is so great that it actually enables us to now be called God's children. So at the heart of all what we're going to talk about this morning, about all these family traits, at the heart of this all, though, is this issue of how did we get into the family— And we want to be really clear. We didn't get into the family because we tried hard. We didn't get into the family because we passed a test. We didn't get into the family because uh, we were, you know, uh, given it by uh, inheritance from our parents or grandparents. We didn't get into the family because we did a certain amount of hard things or good things or whatever. We got into the family solely because of the great love of God for us. This is a life-changing truth. That God takes people who are sinners and he transfers them and makes them saints simply by his love. We see this all over the New Testament. In Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God proves his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were sinners. How did we get into the family? Because of the love of God expressed in Jesus dying for our sins. And then we were transferred, right? That's why it's not just love, it's great love. In Ephesians 3, this influenced that song we sang this morning, How Vast the Love. But in Ephesians 3, Paul prays about basically asking God to help us grasp or understand the the length and the height and the depth and the width of the love of Christ for us. You can't measure it. You can't measure this love that takes you from being a sinner and making you into a saint. And can I just encourage you this morning that nobody loves you As much as God loves you. Your parents don't. No family member does. Your spouse doesn't. Your kids don't. Nobody loves you with this greater love. That's how we got into the family. That's how we became children of God. Now, how do we know this is the focus of the passage this morning or the bullseye? Because of the poetic language, right? See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. There's emphasis there. Double underline that. that. I mean, that's what we're doing here, right? And we are God's children Man, the, because of God's love. Can I just encourage you this morning? If you're a believer in Jesus, meaning that at some point in your life you've repented of your sin and you put your faith in Jesus and His death and resurrection for your forgiveness, right? If that's you, you are in the family. You are a son or a daughter of God. And we are, John says. Don't doubt this truth, that the gospel, right, this message of Jesus' death on our behalf and his resurrection, that faith in the gospel is an expression of God's love, and it's the vehicle through which he transfers us out of darkness and into light. So we are God's children because of his great love. There's also a secondary, you know, relationship here to to consider how it changes our relationship to the world. Watch again in verse 1 in the middle. He says, the reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. What does this have to do with anything? Well, here's the deal. The false teaching that that the church was facing during the time when John wrote this was this but you can believe these things, right? These spiritual truths, but in practice, you can be just like everybody else. Just live like your neighbors, live like the world. There's no distinction here. And John says, not in our family. That's not how it works. The love of God has transferred us into his family, and therefore the world does not know us because it didn't know him. You know, when Jesus walked the earth and John was an eyewitness to this, you'd think that the people that talked the loudest about uh, the Old Testament and the promises of the Messiah and spiritual truth, that they were the ones that would have been like, yes, he's finally here. And those were the people that had the hardest time embracing Jesus. It was just... It was hard for them because they did not value God. They valued maybe their position in the community and all the rest, but they didn't know him. They didn't accept him to the point that they led the nation in rejecting Christ. And the Romans were right there, happy to do the dirty work. And the world didn't get Jesus. The world didn't know him. They did not embrace him. And so John says, don't be surprised that when you're in the family of God, you now live different than the world because they didn't know Christ. They didn't get Jesus and they're not going to get you. But make no mistake, we are in the family. We are God's children because of his great love. I just maybe would encourage you this morning, maybe there are some here who have never really experienced that love. You just just haven't, haven't gotten to the place where you believed that God loves you that much. My friend John Owen, a couple hundred years ago, he said this, it is a misapprehension of God that makes any run from him. You know, sometimes we think of God as this, like, eternal rule bookkeeper, like accountant, where he's, like, just watching you, just tracking all the things that you've done wrong. And God is sovereign. He knows all of our failures. And he could be like that. You know, he could be like that, tracking all the things that we've done that that are wrong. Or he could be the one with the thunderbolt or or the lightning bolt ready to just fire it down as soon as we make a really big mistake and we're constantly afraid of him. He could be like that. He is powerful. He is the righteous judge. But look at how great the love of the Father is for us. That we should be called his children. He's not trying to strike you with lightning. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could be rescued. And when we run from him, we have misunderstood him. That's what Owen said, misapprehended. We've misunderstood him when we run from him. Maybe today's the day you stop running. Yeah, you know, I'd love to talk with you more about that. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're thinking, you know what, I should be, I need to be, please stick around afterwards, come talk to me. I would love to share this good news about how you can be forgiven of your sins in Christ. Now listen, therefore, okay, so we are God's children because of his great love, and that leads naturally to then talking about, okay, what do, what do we like in this family? Okay, what do we like? And if you watch verse two just at the outset, he kind of starts to explain. He says, dear friends, dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We're in chapter 3, verse 2, 1 John here. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. So what John says here in verse 2 is he says, Okay, so right now we are God's children, and we don't yet know exactly what what." perfection and blamelessness looks like for us we're headed there but we don't know yet what that's like but we are still God's children now in fact we know that when Jesus returns we will be like him because we will see him as he is so here's the crucial connection here we will be like him and we will see him as he is this is what God is doing to us he is making us like Christ okay so he's basically making us so that we resemble the family And this is where I think we get to the the main concept of the passage this morning. God's love certainly brings us into the family, and therefore, as God's children, we reflect God's character. That's where the whole paragraph functions, okay? As God's children, we are God's children, and God's children reflect God's character, okay? We need to reflect God's character. In fact, it's impossible for us not to reflect His character ultimately, So he's going to talk about some of the different ways that this happens. But you just need to know this morning that as God's children, we reflect God's character. We will be like him. And this is not, by the way, exclusive to the Apostle John. The Apostle Paul said essentially something very similar in 2 Corinthians 3 and in Philippians 3 and in Colossians 3. Uh, In Colossians 3 verse 4, Paul said, When Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. So we'll be with him, and we will be like him. This is not just a physical transformation, but it's especially a moral transformation, and that's where John settles. So we're going to think about, okay, now I'm in the family by God's love, so how should I be different, or how should I reflect the family's uh, attributes? And so now we can track back up to verse 28 and, and just see how this all unpacks. So God's children reflect, reflect God's character, but there's four specific ways we're going to look at, all right, four specific ways that he unpacks in, in, the, in the paragraph. Watch verse 28. Here he says, So now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. The first attribute that he focuses on about God's children is confidence in his coming. Confidence in his coming. This is related to an important key truth That is, that Jesus is coming back. John says, you got to know that as we function in in the world as God's children, we do so with confidence looking forward to Christ's return. So that leads to a, a, a command that goes along with that, a command to persevere or to remain in him. And that's the command of verse 28. So now, little children, that term of endearment, dear children, persevere or remain in him. So that when he does appear, we can have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. John envisions two scenarios for people that claim to be God's children. So on the one hand, he sees a scenario where people have claimed to be God's children. Maybe they bought the lie, the proto-Gnostic lie that said, okay, it only matters what I believe, right? And they didn't live at all like God's children. There's living like the world. Watch everything the world watches. Say everything like the world says it conduct ourselves just the way everybody else does it in our culture, right? They're just going with the flow of the culture all the time. And he says, and those, for those folks, when Jesus returns, there will be an element of embarrassment or shame, potentially because they're not even believers or possibly just because at the moment of his return, they're like, why have I been playing so much Sudoku on my phone? Like, you know, like there's, there's like a, 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 an element of like, I'm not living for what I'm supposed to be living for here. Right, I'm wasting my energy following the world, and so there's, there there could be an element of shame. On the other hand, he says, if you're if you're a child of God and God's children reflect God's character, we we should be confident in His coming, so that when He returns, He will find us being about exactly what He called us to be about. So we look forward to His return in confidence. Now, part of that confidence is because we're confident in the gospel. We know that acceptance by Jesus is not. Because of our performance, it's because of his love. We already covered that, right? But also we're confident because, hey, guess what? Uh, I am walking by faith. Not perfectly, but I'm walking by faith. I, I am seeking to follow the Spirit of God, to heed his word, to make changes. And so John says, don't be, don't be fooled. Remain. Persevere. You'll be tempted to give up. You'll be tempted to, to, to give in. Jesus is coming back, so let's have confidence in his coming. I wonder, in your life, what are the circumstances that might cause you to basically fail to persevere, right? He he mentions more about perseverance in chapter 3, verse 2, in regards to his coming. Watch again, verse 2, chapter 3. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. There we see it again, confidence in his coming. Again, in verse 3, and everyone who has this hope, the hope of his coming, right, in him, they purifies himself just as he is pure. We're focusing there on the hope, right, the hope in Christ. We know Jesus is coming. We're confident in his return. And that confidence in his coming results in perseverance today in our lives. You know what? You need this reminder when we lose sight of what's what's most important. You ever been in that situation where you realize my pro- my priorities aren't right? I need to make an adjustment here. And sometimes we, we like stiff arm the spirit there. We're like, no, I don't, I'm fine. I'm fine. But don't do that. Maybe if the spirit of God is prompting you that your priorities aren't right, maybe you need to stop and just go, you know what? Jesus is coming back. And I'm a part of the family. And therefore, that means something, that I I need to take stock of my choices. I need to take stock of how I spend my time and what I'm doing. I need to take stock of how I'm doing what I'm doing. How am I going about my school? How am I functioning in my family? How am I doing in my relationships at work, right? And am I living in a way that upon the moment of Jesus' return, he's coming back, that I will be confident in him because of the gospel, and because of what it's done to me? Or am I going to be ashamed, There's this recognition. God's children reflect God's character. And the first way we reflect His character is confidence in His coming. I wonder, maybe you need to take a moment and just reprioritize a few things in your life. Make some adjustments. Don't be afraid of doing that. Honor God by doing that and being confident in His coming. There's the call to persevere. The second characteristic of God's family is, that John focuses on here, is righteous living. Watch verse 29. Okay, back up to verse 29. John says, if you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Okay, so work with me again on the heresy. So the heresy was like, believe these spiritual truths. The spiritual world is not connected to The practical, real world, okay? You can believe that stuff. Nothing changes over here. (laughs) John says, no. If you know that he is righteous, that God is just and righteous, right? He is the standard of moral perfection, right? If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well, deep down. What? That everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So he's saying, if you're born of of him, if you've been born again, if you are now in the family, like reborn spiritually right now, if you've been born again, then you will do what is right. Because he is right. He actually clarifies that explicitly down in verse 7 of chapter 3. Again, just stating the same thing in a different way. But in verse 7 of chapter 3, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Right, The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Don't buy the lie that you can believe something about God and have it not transform your life. Don't, don't buy that lie. He is righteous, and if you have been born again, if you've been transformed, then you will live in a, a way that reflects his righteousness. Why? Because God's children reflect God's character. Because God's children reflect God's character here, specifically with righteous living. The key truth is, for this part of our our Christian character, is that God himself, God is righteous. God is righteous. We have to come directly here at a major problem that we face given the world that we live in and the times that we live in. And God has sovereignly ordained for us to live in these times and to follow him. But you need to know that we live in a time when most people in in Western cultures, in Europe and in the United States, uh, they believe that morality is a construct, okay, that basically to know what is right, to know how to do what is right, that that is something that's just kind of internally in you. It's a gut feel, and uh, this goes all the way back to Rousseau, the philosopher Rousseau, and Karl Marx. They said that morality, as we think of it, in terms of right and wrong, those are just social constructs, and they were like, those are bad. You don't want, you don't want that, and They were right in the sense that morality is not just a social construct, but that wasn't necessarily a problem. The problem was they failed to see that morality is not anchored in self. True morality is anchored outside of us in that God is righteous. He's the righteous one. And that standard never changes. We we need to know that. You, You need to know that. There is a basis for discerning right and wrong in our behavior. And it is in God because God is righteous. John had to say it twice in this paragraph just to make us make sure that we don't miss it. And notice how he terms, you know, he he phrases it in, in endearing terms. Little children, don't miss this. Like, let no one deceive you because they'll try. But the one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. That he is God. Because God is righteous, God's children behave in righteous ways. What does that mean specifically? It means this that we don't serve the God of our appetites, but rather we live in right relationships with others. We say, okay, uh, if, if righteousness reflects the idea of justness or justice, our culture is big on justice, kind of, when it suits them. But like, here's the deal. If we want to really talk about justness, we need to talk about, okay, am I conducting myself in a way that, is, that expresses love for God and love for people? right? Am I treating people that way? And when we treat people that way, we're good. This is what the Old Testament law was designed to do. The Old Testament law was like training wheels for Israel to show them this is how you live with your neighbor in such a way that is right and just. So one famous example in Deuteronomy, you have this house, there's going to be a, there's like a patio up on top of the house on the roof that people hang out on, to live in right relationship with your neighbor means put a fence around that thing, because there will be pastors' kids who come over there, and who will have a hard time controlling their energy, and they might off the side. So, you, you, to to be lived justly in relationship to others, you put a fence up around that 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 uh, that roof uh, hangout area, right? The parapet—that's right? what it's called. It. Anyway, so you you put you put a fence around that. That's what you do. Well, fast forward to, to today, we don't need a law giving us all the exhaustive ways we should prefer our neighbors, God says, you don't, need, you don't need 613 commands. What you need is to love me and to love people. And God's children reflect his character, which means in our relationships, we will conduct ourselves righteously, treating people fairly, not by the world's standard, but by God's standard, which is often different, by the way. Um, we had a, an opportunity. I, I was with, in Dunkin' Donuts with one of the kids this week, and there was somebody had dropped money on the ground. And uh, at first glance, you know, my heart ran to that American moral principle, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Um, you've been there? Finders, keepers, losers, weepers? Um, but it's, I, the thought was, if somebody's walking out, and they drop this money, they may come back for it. You never know. And so let's go give it to the manager in case somebody comes back. And if nobody claims it, throw it in the tip jar and they can be blessed by that, right? But it was like, I thought that was kind of a struggle in my heart for a moment there because I'm an American and I really do believe some days finders keepers, losers, sweepers. But God's children reflect God's character. And he is just, he is righteous, which means he does what is right always. The question is, do we? How do people who who are unjust or people who are unrighteous, how do they live in righteousness? Because the love of God has transformed us. See how great this love is. And we are God's children. And he is righteous. Therefore, we are called to live like we're in the family. You might think of Jesus and his relationships with others. Uh, In the Gospel of John, John says he lived full of grace and truth. You want to know what justice or righteousness looks like in your relationships? Be full of grace and truth. And, and you'll never go wrong in how you treat people. Don't, you don't, we don't gloss over the truth and pretend it's not important, right? But we also aren't harsh and and, and you know bitter or angry. We're, we're full of grace in how we handle people. If we follow the Lord Jesus in that, well, we're reflecting his character. And God's children reflect God's character. We're confident in his coming. And we have, uh, we have this characteristic of righteous living. The third way that we reflect God's character as his children, we see in verse 3. And that's in purity or holiness. So if you track back to chapter 3, verse 3, John writes, And everyone who has this hope, the hope of his return, the hope of the second coming, right? Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. I want to make a distinction for you this morning between righteousness and purity. Think of righteousness as what we do in in relationship, how we live in regard to others. Think of purity, though, as more basically an internalized character issue. Purity or holiness right here is what we're called to. And notice that John says, because we have this hope in Christ... Uh, we purify this one, purifies himself just as he is pure. So the key truth here is not just that God is righteous, but also that God is pure or holy, that God is pure or holy. Here's the reality. Purity or holiness, because it's a fundamental characteristic of God's character, it must be reflected in his children. What is the purity or holiness of God? Well, essentially, it's God's dedication to his own glory where he says, I will not allow myself to be stained by any other pursuit. I will not, I will not stoop down and get involved in something that is less than my glory. And in God's children, purity and holiness is the same. It's a commitment to God's glory above all else. You can think about it in terms of that term pure though, right? That that it's untainted or unstained, unstained by worldliness or by self-centeredness unstained by worldliness or self-centeredness. I was trying to think of analogies for this. And I was going to use the analogy of snow, and uh, my firstborn said, "Don't use snow. It gets dirty too easy." So, you know like people that don't live in the people that don't live in the glorious northeast, they have these romantic notions of snow and how pure it is. But we all know the reality, okay? As soon as people start driving on that road, that snow goes from glorious to disgusting, right? Pretty quick. So I appreciated Jack's point. Maybe snow's not the best analogy, although it is a biblical one, but we'll we'll move on from snow. Uh, Maybe think about it in terms of purity like your wedding dress or or your wedding suit, the suit you're going to wear on your wedding day or your wedding dress. Ladies, nobody's, no no bride in her right mind is going to put on her wedding dress and do the dishes, right? Gentlemen, you should not put on your wedding suit and go mow the lawn. Notice how it's different, because guys don't always, like, you know. So, you, guys, don't do that, okay? Why? Because when you're wearing those clothes, you're set apart for a particular purpose. It's special. You, you belong to one thing and one thing only, and that is that wedding right, celebration. That's why you're dressed that way. Believer, we are dressed in purity, God's love has gifted us purity in Christ. Therefore, God's children reflect God's character. Therefore, we are called to live that way. To not be stained by self-centeredness or by worldliness. And John says, actually, the one who's looking forward to Christ's return, the one who's in the family, he purifies himself, practically speaking. Why? Because God is pure The the child of God pursues purity. Um, At this point, perhaps the Spirit of God might convict you about areas of your life that are impure. We could think in terms of morality. We could think in terms of what we're watching in entertainment. We could think in terms of of, uh, the way we use our speech and how we talk to certain people. And maybe God would just ping your heart this morning and just remind you, hey, you know what? There's an area of growth here for you where you're struggling. And when we see areas that were not pure... What should we do? We confess them as sin, and we can be confident that we are forgiven because of the great love of God for us, right? So God's love has provided forgiveness for us. Therefore, we pursue purity. Maybe you need to make some changes in your life, in your entertainment diet, right? In the way you speak in certain contexts. Maybe you need to make some changes in how you're behaving in order to protect the purity that God has gifted to us in Christ. Again, God is pure, therefore we're called to this life of purity and holiness. In one sense, it can, this can be misunderstood, but just work with me here. In one sense, we are what we do. And John says, if you're born of him, you live in righteousness, because he is righteous. If we belong to the pure, holy God, then we conduct ourselves in purity or holiness. So in some sense, right, this, what, how we live reflects this, the truth about us. Now, obviously, John recognizes the fact that we don't do so perfectly, and we need forgiveness. And I would just refer you back to the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, where he says, hey, listen, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He makes provision for us when we fail. So it's not a works-based system here, but it is a system that says, you know what? We don't believe the lie that I just believe one thing and I can live another way. And I'd love to tell you that that problem, that disconnect was only in the first century, but you and I both know that that's a problem today, where we say one thing, we believe one thing, and then we don't let it impact the daily decisions that we're making. If we are what we do, what does your behavior say about your family identity? Does your behavior reflect the fact that you are a child of God? Not perfectly, but does it show confidence in His coming? Does it show righteous living? Does it show purity or holiness? Or does it show something else? This last aspect in our passage this morning about the character of the Christian deals with resistance to sin. And he kind of comes at it in two chunks. So look at verse 4, starting in verse 4. And we're going to clarify some of this language here to help it, I think, help us get the point because sometimes it's easy to misunderstand. But watch what he says. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So let's just pause right here. John just wants to define the terms here, and he says, here's the deal. You got two choices. You got a life characterized by sin, or a life characterized by righteousness and purity, or holiness. Those are your options here. And he says, everyone who commits sin, in verse 4, right, they practice lawlessness, which means... They reject any standard. And again, if I could summarize in some senses where our culture is on this whole concept, our culture wants to tell you there is no standard for how you should behave other than what you want to do. As long as you're not murdering somebody, okay, you're okay. So if you want to do it, then that's what's right. But that is a rejection of a standard, of any standard, really. You're saying you are the God, you create the standard. But John says sin, when you, when you kind of get down to the details of it, sin is lawlessness. It's the rejection of God's standard. But watch verse 5. You know that he was revealed. Now we're talking about God revealing himself in Christ. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins. And there is no sin in him. So in what universe are you going to argue that to be a follower of Jesus results in, eh, I can do whatever I want kind of an attitude? Jesus came to take away sins, not just the penalty for sin, which he certainly did, but also the power of sin in your life. Jesus came to remove the power of sin in your life. You do not have to say yes to that temptation. You do not have to live the way everybody else lives. You do not have to give in to those cravings that are pushing you to do something that you know is wrong. No, God's children reflect God's character. And in this sense, with resistance to sin. Notice verse six, he kind of, expresses that resistance. He says, everyone who remains in him, remember he told us to remain in him, everybody who remains in him does not sin, usually, (laughs) right? He's saying generically here, right? He obviously, again, acknowledges that sometimes we fail, but he's saying, in general, the trajectory of your life is not just like everybody else. So everyone who remains in him does not sin, Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Everyone who continues in sin and doesn't care, they haven't seen God or know God. So again, John comes at the false teaching, this idea, you can believe one thing and live another way. He says that is not going to work because if you've really seen God or know God, you know that Jesus came to take away sin, not so that we could just keep going in it. He goes on in verse 7 to now talk about it negatively. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Now watch verse 8. Let's jump to verse 8. The one who commits sin, all right, 1 John 3, verse 8. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. John says, there are two teams, people. There are two teams. And... Listen, again, the culture says, no, there's not. And God says, yes, there are. So you just have to decide who you believe. It says, here's the deal in verse 8. The one who commits sin, who continues in sin, is of the devil. And then he just clarifies, by the way, the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Go all the way back to Genesis. And the first time we meet Satan in the form of that serpent in the garden, what is he doing? He is deceiving Adam and Eve twisting and corrupting the word of God to them and coaxing them into doing the same in disobedience to God. Rejection of God's standard. Remember, sin is lawlessness. We reject God's standard. And basically, Satan says to Eve, you know you want it, do what you want. And essentially, Eve and Adam together said, yeah, yeah, we're going to go that way. Right. And so there's this rejection of the standard and the devil who sinned from the beginning. Right. Everyone who commits sin is of the devil. And that's his game plan. That's his lifestyle. And then he clarifies in verse eight, the son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the devil's works, not to justify your sin. Not, not to uh, wink at it and say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Jesus came to destroy the devil's works. So don't believe the lie that says you can just go with the culture and, and be like everybody else. That is satanic, right? It's rooting our behavior in following the lead of Satan, in rejection of God and his standard. And Jesus came to destroy the world of sin and rebellion against him. Again, by his grace, he's redeeming us out of it. But make no mistake... That's enemy territory right there. There are two teams, or you're born of God. Verse 9, watch how he describes it. He says, everyone who has been born of God does not continue in sin. He says, does not sin. It's the, technically, it's the continual use of that tense. So he does not continue to sin because his seed remains in him. He's in the family, right? He is not able to continue in sin because he has been born of God. So I'm just trying to clarify here what he's saying, but he's saying, if you're born of God, you don't continue this lifestyle of sin unchecked. No, God's seed remains in you. You're now in the family and God's children reflect God's character. And therefore, right, we are not able to continue in sin unchecked. What does that look like practically? Here's what it looks like practically. If you're a follower of Jesus, and let's say you you stumble and fall, and you're following the culture on one particular sin struggle that you have, right? The follower of Jesus doesn't sleep soundly in that circumstance. The follower of Jesus, over time, especially, right? The follower of Jesus, something ain't right. And there's there's a a testimony. The Spirit of God is just working in your heart, and the Spirit of God's going, "Uh, there's something there. we got to sort that out. We need to root that out. So... If you're a child of God, you you are unable, by the Spirit of God, you are unable to continue in sin unchecked, okay? The lie was, you can do whatever you want because you're good, right? And so John says, no, 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 that's not how it's going to work. There are two teams here, and those who are born of God can't continue in sin. They repent of it. They confess it and call it what it is. And they're forgiven because of the love of Jesus. But what we don't say is, it's no big deal, it's okay, or I just justify it. Watch verse 10. This is how, this whole discussion, right? This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. John says, listen, if you want to know who's a follower of Jesus, the proof is in the pudding. You look to their behavior. You you look to the way they're living their life. And it's not perfect, but the one, who, the one who is of the devil follows the culture, lives in sin, and doesn't care. And they work hard to justify it. But the one who's born of God is unable to continue that way. Instead, well, because we're God's son or daughter, we reflect God's character. And so we say yes to the spirit, and we say no to temptation. So this fourth characteristic of God's children is resistance to sin. And the key truth here is, is that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Why would we revel in them? Why would we justify them? Why would we downplay their significance? The corollary to that truth is that Jesus also came to remove sin, to remove its penalty, but also its power. And when he returns, he'll remove its presence. I just wonder, maybe there are some areas in your life where you are not, on board with God's standard. And if you're not okay with God's standard for righteousness and for holiness, purity, right? That's sin. Sin is lawlessness, right? That's what that is. And God has provided a way for us to be forgiven of that. But when we're forgiven, we recognize we're called to a new way of living, right? We are God's children. And so we, we're going to call sin what it is. It's satanic. You might think, oh, Pastor Ryan, John's surely exaggerating here. No, he is not. And we actually find this teaching consistently throughout Scripture, that you either right, are by faith following God in his family, or you are following Satan. And he works hard in our culture to hide that reality, to hide the fact that he's the one driving the bus of unbelief. But you just got to know that when you choose to go with everybody else and to go against God, you're actually going with the devil. And so the, John says you just got to know everybody like that's that's the standard and this is how God's children and the devil's children are made clear, right? You can see it in in their character. There is no middle ground. Maybe this morning God's convicting you about an area in your life where you've been justifying sin rather than calling it what it is and turning from it. Again, this is based in the grace of God. So by God's love, we are his children. And we are his children. And God's children reflect his character. Maybe this is one of the reasons why celebrity Christians, it's just, it's a dangerous road to walk on. Um, And why celebrity Christians, when they fail, right, it's so damaging. Because, you know, you can look to people, and if they're known to be a Christian, like publicly, well, then there's a certain accountability that comes with that. But when people are known to be a Christian, and that what and then what ends up being revealed is they were hiding the whole time this other secret life. We realize, well, the Lord has made clear, right, who they belong to. And it's just scary. It's hard. It doesn't mean Christians live perfectly. But, man, that's, it's just that reminder that, wait a minute, hold on. If I claim to be a follower of Jesus, then, then I should reflect his character. And when we fail, we don't say, okay, now I'm going to just try harder to do better. We say, I need to look, verse 1, at the love of God for me. I need to see this love of God that has transformed me and brought me into his family. And now I need to ask, what are you calling me to, God, in my family? What are you calling me to at school? What are you calling me to at work? What are you calling me to in this particular issue that I'm facing? God, I am your child. Help me reflect your character today. You ask the question, where where does God have it for you to grow? His acceptance of us is not conditioned on our performance but his acceptance of us does condition us to live for him, right? It, 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 it prepares us, and it transforms us to live a different kind of life. This passage serves two ways. It warns us against being false believers and claiming to be a believer, but we're not really. So watch your life. But it also shows us areas where we, where we might need to grow. And my encouragement to you this morning is don't let this moment pass without asking, how can I grow as a son or a daughter of God? Because God's children reflect God's character. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you for these verses uh, here in 1 John 2.28 down to 3.10. Lord, we we see this reality on display, first and foremost, Lord, of your love for us. And how by your love we are now your children and are part of your family. Lord, we also see very clearly a distinction that because we are in your family, we should live in particular ways. And so I pray and ask that you would help us to be confident in your love, and therefore to follow you by faith. Help us to be righteous because you are righteous. Help us to be holy because you are holy. Lord, help us to see that we, we fight against sin because you came to remove sin and to destroy the works of the devil. Lord, help us to be confident in your return and to recognize that it should change how we live, these truths Lord, I pray for those who are struggling this morning, in particular areas, that you would comfort them with the gospel and give them guidance and wisdom as to how to move forward in faith. Lord, at the end of the day, we know that your acceptance of us is not based on our performance, but it's based on your love for us. And we celebrate and rejoice in that truth. But Lord, protect us from this false teaching that says, because you love us, it doesn't matter how we live. Lord, help us to see that because you love us, we should be transformed And we should look like we're in your family. So help us to grow in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.